You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. If you have to pray to God, if you have to ask God if you're an asshole, that's something that you need to fall to your knees and do. Dear God, am I an asshole? You don't actually need to bother God with that question. You indeed are an asshole. If that is something that you are going to pray about, if you're going to pray on, am I an asshole? We can all cut to the chase. You are an asshole. Elizabeth Loughton, until I think today or yesterday, was a staffer for a GOP Congress critter. And last week after Barack Obama pardoned a couple of turkeys, that inane, ridiculous White House goofball – photo op ritual, after he pardoned those turkeys with his teenage daughters uh, at his side, looking bored. Who wouldn't be bored by the, the – the whole country's bored by this. Imagine being dragged to this thing. But like teenagers looking a bit bored and not impressed at the pardoning of the turkeys. Elizabeth Loughton wrote this Facebook post that isn't very long but I will read in whole. Dear Sasha and Malia, I get you're both in those awful teen years but you're part of the first family. Try showing a little class. At least respect the part you play. Then again, your mother and father don't respect their positions very much or the nation for that matter. So I'm guessing you're coming up a little short in the good role model department. Nevertheless, stretch yourself. Rise to the occasion. Act like being in the White House matters to you. Dress like you deserve respect, not a spot at the bar. And certainly don't make faces during televised public events. This Facebook post by Elizabeth Loughton kind of exploded the internet over the weekend. Uh, particularly in light of the antics of the Bush twins during George W. Bush's presidency when they were regularly photographed careening around Washington and other cities drunk, off their asses, falling down, acting fools. And that wasn't a problem because it's okay when a Republican does it. Could you imagine the shitstorm if Barack and Michelle Obama's daughters were the train wrecks the Bush girls are were. They seem to be fine now. They got through it as most of our teenagers do. They get through this face-pulling, silly choice-making stage in one piece. But Loughton's comments seemed a little particularly tone-deaf because the Bush girls are not a distant memory. The Bush girls were the previous first daughters. And there was no grousing from the right about their antics. And there was some grousing actually from the left about their antics. And I pushed back against it because they're teenagers, whatever. I actually thought that was kind of real of the Bush girls as opposed to disqualifying. Anyway, after the world blew up at Loughton, she posted another little item to Facebook saying, I reacted to an article and quickly judged the two young ladies in a way that I would never have wanted to be judged myself as a teenager. After many hours of prayer... Talking to my parents and rereading my words, I can now see how clearly hurtful they were and she goes on to apologize. She had to go ask her friend Jesus whether she was being an asshole to two teenage girls about their comportment. If she was being an asshole for saying that Sasha and Malia, 13 and 16 years old, looked like a couple of bar slags. And guess what? After the entire internet had already told her that she had been an asshole, after every human being on Twitter told her that she had been an asshole, God chimed in and told her that she was indeed an asshole. And she apologized and today she resigned. 
lost her job. Good to see some accountability in Washington, D.C. And, you know, careful about the finger that you point, right? Careful who you call a bar slag. Careful whose teenage antics you scrutinize and criticize because that shit comes back to bite you on the ass. Today, Gawker has a piece about Elizabeth Loughton headlined the GOP staffer who criticized Obama's daughters was arrested as a teenager for shoplifting. TMZ has the documents. You know, in the schadenfreude department, this is pretty fucking sweet. But the lesson here is everybody does things in their teenage years that are embarrassing. There are only two teenagers in the country right now who have to do those things in front of the national media. And they get a pass. They get a pass for what they're wearing. They get a pass for the looks on their faces. They just get a fucking pass. And Elizabeth Loughton's teenage shoplifting escapades, those would have gotten a pass too had Elizabeth Loughton kept her mouth shut about Malia and Sasha and the looks on their faces and the clothes on their backs during the pardoning of the fucking turkey that nobody goddamn gives a flying fuck about. And if Elizabeth Loughton's God was truly omniscient, maybe Elizabeth Loughton wouldn't have had to pray about it after the fact to find out that she was an asshole. Maybe God would have tapped her on the shoulder in advance of hitting post on that idiot thing she wrote for Facebook and said, hey, hey, Elizabeth, we're friends. You pray. We talk. Don't, don't, don't do that. I'm God. I'm omniscient. I can see what's coming. Don't fucking do it. But no. God is never there really when you need him. God doesn't show up before the tornado. God shows up after. God didn't show up before Elizabeth Loughton hit post. God showed up after. And today, Elizabeth Loughton is fun employed. And now your calls. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescues. Um, I am a heterosexual female in my late 20s. And I recently started seeing this guy who's the first person I've been with in a long time that's really sexually compatible with me. Uh, we both have high sex drives. He loves to go down on me like multiple times a night. I like going down on him. He's the first person to give me multiple orgasms. So as I'm sure you can understand, I'm pretty excited about our sex life and I want to make things work. Um, so I have a few questions for you. After our most recent hookup, I think I got bacterial vaginosis. Um, I'm not super surprised because he went down on me like three or four times and we had a lot of sex in between that and the whole thing lasted like over an hour. Um, we also didn't use condoms because we've both been tested. I'm on birth control, um, but he also didn't come inside me. Um, anyway, I doubt I'm the first person to have sex like that. So I'm wondering what can I do to prevent getting DB if we have another night like that in the future? Um, on that night, after my first orgasm, he said he wanted me to squirt in his mouth. I've never squirted. And I actually thought that squirting was like genetic. I thought that you either could or you couldn't, but he said that I could. All I had to do is let go and it would feel like I had to pee. Um, so I said I would try, but the more we fooled around, he started saying instead that he wanted me to pee in his mouth. Um, I've never been into sex involving pee, but, uh, he seems super into it and I am super into him. So I want to try to do it for him, but, and that turned into me sitting on his face while he was going down on me while I was trying to pee. And it lasted like, I don't know, 30 minutes to the point where my knees were hurting. And I just like could not go. I and mean, I kept feeling like I had pee, but he said I hadn't. So two questions. First of all, can I train myself to squirt? Is that a thing? And second, do you or any of your callers have advice on how I can get myself to just fucking pee the next time? Um, I really like this guy. I want things to progress so we can try out some new kinks. So 
any advice you have would be very appreciated. So many really great questions, and I'm just going to tear into them. Uh, BV, bacterial vaginosis, is uh, an infection that's about a bac- uh, an imbalance in the good and bad bacteria in your vagina, and it is annoying, but according to the CDC, it is not considered a sexually transmitted disease. They don't know quite how it is spread during sex or if indeed it is spread during sex, and it's not considered – like I said, it's not considered a sexually transmitted disease or infection. Unfortunately, according to the CDC, there's really no good advice out there on how to prevent it. I think you have to cross your fingers and hope your bacteria are in balance. If you're doing something and you note that that whenever you do that thing, you always have a BV problem or outbreak, then maybe you stop doing that thing. This happened to you once after a, a night of marathon sex. Maybe it was the marathon sex or maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe you were coming down with BV and you had this crazy night of marathon sex and you've associated the two because they happened right on top of each other. So my advice to you would be keep having crazy sex and see if when you have that crazy sex, you always get BV. You might need to dial it back a little bit. Beyond that, the only recommendations out there are don't douche. And I assume like most women today, you don't douche. It's a stupid fucking thing to do. The other recommendations I don't think you're going to be really into. Not having sex. That's one. And limiting your number of sex partners, which if you're only seeing this guy, you've already accomplished. So as for the other stuff, yeah, some women can train themselves to learn to squirt. But not all women are capable of squirting. There's a lot of debate out there about the Grafenberg spot, about whether it exists or not, whether the role it plays, whether there's some proto or vestigial prostate gland-ish thing or tissues in women that surround the urethra like the prostate gland in men surrounds the urethra and produces a lot of prostate fluid that are you know make up most of what uh, comprises semen in the dude when it shoots out. Uh, and that some women are able to get this gland up and running, this sort of vestigial proto-prostate tissues. There's been some studies of squirt of female ejaculate that found that it is closer in chemical composition to ejaculate, to male ejaculate, uh, bears very little or no resemblance to urine. So how do you get that going? You just try and try and try and see if you're one of those women who's going to be capable of kicking that vestigial proto-prostate tissue into gear or not. And if you are not, don't stress about it. Uh, You're not damaged, not ineffective. There are some proselytizing female squirters out there who insist that – and their male partners uh, and enablers – who insist that all women are capable of this and women who aren't capable of this are damaged or blocked or repressed somehow. And that is just bullshit. Give it a try. Give it your best try. Have fun while you do it, whether you squirt or not. And if you get there – Yahtzee. And if you don't get there, look at all those crazy fun orgasms you had and will continue to have whether you get there or not. As for peeing, here's the mistake you made. While you were trying to pee in your boyfriend's mouth, he was eating your pussy. The thing about water sports, if you read about water sports, if you talk to people who engage in water sports, is it is difficult to pee. It's difficult to Make that so to flip that switch and use your genitals for their excretory functions while someone else is paying attention to them for their pleasure function, right? One sort of shuts the other off. And what you need to do, uh, and what you might want to try next time, is just raise your pussy up off your boyfriend's face, look at the ceiling, close your eyes, and concentrate on peeing. Without any stimulation, don't let him touch your pussy. Don't let him touch your tits. Just he lays there very still and quiet. And you kind of pretend he's not there. You kind of pretend you're out camping. You just sort of close your eyes and think of England and concentrate on peeing. And then once it starts, once the flow starts, then he can 
clamp his mouth back uh, onto your pussy and around your urethra and drink and drink and drink. Or he can just lay there with his mouth open and you can direct your stream into his waiting and grateful face. Good luck. Have fun. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old woman from Canada. I'm in a committed relationship with my boyfriend of about eight months. I really love this man. Um, I've pretty much loved him for longer than we've been together as a friend, um, and things are really great with us. But he had one previous relationship that lasted 10 years, starting when he was 14. Um, Him and his ex-girlfriend were engaged They went to school together. They lived together. I think as a lot of relationships do, after a long time, they just, well, he realized that his heart wasn't in it anymore as a relationship, but they had this such a best friend, almost like a sibling dynamic where they'd been through most of their um, teenage, well, all their teenage years together and some of their post-20 years together. He is having a really hard time letting go of this person. When we first started dating, um, they were still very close, talked by text almost every day. I've tried to be really supportive of him, both being friends with her, and then also when she found out that we were going out and had been together for quite a while um, and had moved in together, she decided that they could they couldn't be friends, and he was really choked up about that. The ways in which I've tried to be supportive of it are, well, trying not to be jealous. When she first said goodbye to him, he would go on these kind of crying jags where, you know, he just, I feel like he was just kind of almost just starting to get over the breakup, even though they've been broken up for, I think, about three years. I would hold him, tell him it was okay, um, and also just basically told him that I love him no matter what and I really want to be there for him. I don't doubt his commitment to me, and I don't doubt his love for me, but I'm just wondering, is he going to get over this? It's wonderful that you're trying to be so understanding uh, and you're so empathetic uh, of your boyfriend's pain. Uh, But at a certain point, you need to not be your boyfriend's emotional tampon. You need to not be your boyfriend's doormat. You need to put yourself first. You need to ask that he... Be considerate of your feelings. You are his girlfriend. You guys live together. He says he loves you. He says that he ended this relationship because he didn't feel uh, his past relationship. He he broke up with that long-term girlfriend because he just didn't feel as strongly about her anymore as he claims to feel about you. And yet this constant drama, drama, drama about her you know, removing herself from his life to really punish him in a way for getting a new girlfriend. That didn't happen until she found out about you. It didn't happen until she found out that you guys were dating and living together. And then she kind of retaliates by cutting off all contact. And who knows? Maybe she has him by the short hairs. Maybe you've been lied to. Maybe she ended the relationship and he didn't. And she wanted him in her life on her terms, which was we're not together. We're not romantically attached anymore. We're not having sex anymore. But I lean on you for all this emotional support and uh, social support. Maybe she wanted him to be her boyfriend in all things but name. Or (laughs) maybe she wanted him to be her boyfriend in all things but dick, right? That actually – that happens a lot where people end something but – you know, because they're not into the person anymore, they're not sexually attracted to the person anymore, but they are so dependent upon the person for emotional support that they can't let that person go. And it's cruel not to let that person go. 
but you need to stand up. You need to stick up for yourself. It's only been eight months. Uh, you guys are living together a little quickly, I think. That, that might have been a mistake to move in so quickly. I often say that you know we don't have to be in perfect condition to date, but we do have to be in good working order. And if this is where he is about the end of his previous relationship, he was not in good working order. He was not ready to put himself back on the market. And you may have purchased yourself a lemon relationship-wise. So my advice to you is you go to him and say, I don't want to hear about her anymore. I can't be the person that you process this grief with because it is painful to me that you are with me and still grieving the loss of her. So you go grieve that off in a corner. You go unload on other friends. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I need you to be my boyfriend. I need you to be concerned about my feelings as I am concerned about yours, as I have been empathetic to yours. It is now your turn to empathize with where I'm at. And where I'm at is hurting because of this big show, because the girl that you're no longer with isn't answering your texts anymore. And if he can't do that, maybe he needs to be single for a while. Maybe you need to dump him and move the fuck out and tell him to give you a call in six months or a year when he is in good working order, which he is not in now. Hi, Dan. I am a 38-year-old straight male. I know that you have a very healthy attitude towards pornography, given the Hump Festival and some things that that, uh, you've said about pornography being a positive thing. And I have to admit that I've I've got kind of a long history with porn. I've been watching stuff on the internet since like the year 2000 or 1999, basically as soon as I became old enough. And I've never seen anything like what I've seen recently uh, from one place in particular called facial abuse. And what I'm wondering is, for one thing, are you aware of of this site? I do know that the girls that go on there or sites like it do sign consent forms but it really looks like things get out of control for them it it looks like what i imagine rape looking like and i know maybe that's the point but goodness me some of it is is unbelievable it'll bring tears to your eyes or you, you know if you have a, a young daughter or something like that you know just imagining someone being treated that way i i, I just can't believe that exists and i Again, I look at the comments in there and and you see comments that are supportive of them and everything. The comment sections are like cesspools usually, bringing out the worst in people. I, I just, I can't believe some of the scenarios and, you know, forced oral to the point of vomiting, being called they're ugly and fat and have their, uh, you know, attention drawn to their wolves on their stomach and just hurtful stuff, just not sexy at all, very upsetting. Um, and I'm just, I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts about that type of site, that type of content. And as a, you know, open-minded person, how you filter that and how you, uh, how you interpret it. I'm not trying to impugn your motives here. I'm not suggesting that you are lying or you're a hypocrite or anything else. I just want to encourage you to stop going to this site. If it brings tears to your eyes, if it appalls you, If it leaves you feeling uh, distraught, if the comments are abusive cesspools that make you ache for everyone involved or for all the women involved in the production of these hardcore videos, don't go there. Don't watch. Don't read the comment sections. Stay the fuck out. 
That said, you know, people do sign consent forms. There are people who make really hardcore extreme porn because it's what they enjoy. Uh, there are also people who make really hardcore extreme porn under a kind of economic duress. And that is problematic. And to fix that, we really do need to fix our winner-take-all income inequality, no social safety net culture, that there are broader issues that we have to work on. There are people who go into coal mines and gold pits and work in McDonald's under duress, under a certain kind of economic pressure. There are people who do all sorts of things that are risky and dangerous. There are people who work in chemical plants in Texas for shitty money that explode. There are people who work in meat processing packing plants with horrible safety records where they're, where they're also in a way being carved up and consumed themselves. Um, there are all sorts of jobs that people do for the wrong reasons, not because they want to do them, not because they enjoy them, but because they feel they have no choice. And I think – and I don't want to be Pollyanna about this. I think when people do a kind of job under duress when they have no choice that the damage that can be done when you're doing porn for that reason, there's another layer of damage, that there's a kind of psychic and sexual layer to that that can be very debasing and and, and horrible. And my advice is don't consume that kind of porn. Don't look at it. Don't spend any fucking money on it, that there is porn out there. That is hardcore, that features gangbangs, that features, you know, hardcore facial, facials and, and deep throating that is made responsibly. And you should go read feminist porn bloggers like Tristan Taramino and Violet Blue to find your way into a universe where you can discover that kind of porn that scratches that itch where you're assured that the women involved are actually women who enjoy gangbangs, who enjoy that kind of intense, uh, Use and abuse. And they are out there, right? And it's really on you as a responsible consumer to go find that kind of porn in those kinds of places. And it's our job as citizens, all of us, to make sure that we are working to create an economic system where fewer people are doing jobs that destroy them spiritually, psychologically, sexually, doing those kinds of jobs under duress because they have no choice, because they have no option. People should have options. As an open-minded person, how do I filter that? How do I understand it? I understand it as someone's doing that kind of shit underdressed as a problem. And I'm not going to contribute to creating demand for it, whether that's with putting money into that kind of porn or even visiting those kinds of sites and upping their clicks, upping their page views. You are in a very small way contributing to the popularity of that site by visiting it. To be appalled and to ache. Stop going there, which doesn't mean you should stop thinking about it. doesn't mean you should stop thinking about an economic system where people wind up doing this sort of thing under duress. I guess that's the phrase of the day, under duress, right? We don't want people doing things under duress, whatever they are. We live in a culture now where porn is ubiquitous and constantly with us. Wherever we go, we have – not just a porn production studio in the form of our phones and our pockets, which I've often said about young people and, and old people and everybody in sexting and texting. Uh, you know, we carry porn production studios wherever we go. But we also have access to porn wherever we go, 24 hours a day on our phones, on our computers. And so we have to have a conversation about porn and what it means. And I really think we need to have conversations with young men. And I've had conversations with young men that I know uh, and young men that I am parenting about what a lot of this porn out there means, a lot of this very abusive porn, and to, to understand it to, 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 so that we are able to watch it critically 
And to say to, you know, if you want to do something about this kind of porn, to lessen the demand for it, to say to people, there are some people who are legitimately into this sort of thing, who do it responsibly and consensually in a way where every no one is harmed and everyone benefits and that is fine. But a lot of this kind of abusive, horrifying, misogynistic porn is made for people who are angry, is made for men who cannot get laid, is made for men who want to see these women that they desire, want access to them, but then want them punished because they actually don't have anything but virtual access to them. And so I think if we say to young boys, a lot of porn is made for men who are angry. You are not one of those guys, right? You don't want to succumb to that kind of anger because there's a feedback loop. If you give in to this kind of anger, you become less attractive to women, have less access to them, and then depend more and more on this kind of shitty porn where here's what you want and can't have and now watch that thing that rejected you be punished by proxy for you. That actually makes your situation, if you're one of those guys who are feeling neglected or angry, it makes it worse. And I think if you say that to young men, boys, before they are swept away on the tide of porn, the sea of porn that we all float on now, I think they can view it critically. I think they're less likely to succumb. They're less likely to become one of those guys in the comments saying those horrifying shitty things about those women who are in that kind of hardcore porn by free choice or by duress. We talk to them about what that kind of porn is and what it means and the role it plays and the potentially destructive role it can play in the lives, not just of the women who are in it, but the lives of the men who are consuming it. That's my POV on the subject. But my real piece of takeaway advice for you is stop going to those sites that upset you so much. Stop going. Going just to get upset. You're doing the purveyors of that kind of porn a favor by driving up their page views, by upping their rankings on search engines and Google. Don't go. Hi, Dan. My name is Stacy, and I live in the Midwest. I'm a bisexual woman, and I'm married. My husband and I have a wonderful relationship. We've been together for seven years, um, married just past our first year anniversary. We have a house together. Um, everything about our relationship is the best that I've ever had. Um, however, the sex was never 100%. It was always good, but it was never fantastic. It was pretty vanilla. Um, but over time, the sex, my sex drive, I was finding kind of diminishing. And now I know that that was because of birth control. But by the end of my time on birth control, I was pretty much completely uninterested in any sex, but I was forcing myself to have it about once a week. Um, when we got married, I went off birth control cause I knew we would eventually start trying for baby. Um, my sex drive came back with a, um, incredible force. It was like I was a teenager again. Um, all of a sudden the roles were reversed and I wanted to have sex more than he did. So we, so he allowed me to open it up. We have been seeing other people. He has been too. I've been seeing women specifically cause he finds that a little bit less threatening, but he is still a little bit struggling with jealousy. We've just kind of been a couple of months into seeing other people and the, my husband wants to be able to pull the plug on this arrangement at any time. Um, you know, I think he said we can do this for at least six months. He's agreed to that, to tr giving it a really good try. Um, but I'm afraid. So we have another five months before that will technically be up. Um, and so I'm worried. If he does decide to pull the plug, 
what I'm going to do. And I'm wondering what you think about me considering using birth control to turn my sex drive off again. Um, my girlfriend thinks that this is me sort of castrating myself and she seems to find that kind of appalling, but my marriage is so important to me that I would do anything not to lose it. And if I could just make the sex drive go away, then things could go back to the way they were. I do think there need to be accommodations, uh, in a otherwise perfectly lovely, wonderful, loving relationship when there are mixed match libidos, because that can create misery and division. And over the long term, that little fissure, that little crack can cleave a relationship, can, can destroy it, can have two people leave each other. This is why I think it is so very important to establish sexual compatibility before you lash yourselves together. And if not sexual compatibility, then accommodations in the absence of sexual compatibility. And no two people can be all things to each other sexually. There are no perfect matches. There's only near enough. But if you're far from each other, if, if, if there's a real sexual disconnect, that is going, that is acid that you poured into the relationship. It is going to eat away at it. And if you go to a couple's counselor, they will always fault the person with the higher libido. Cause wouldn't it just be simpler if nobody ever wanted to have sex and we could all just live together as siblings. So what do you do? Uh, you know, I think there do need to be accommodations. I don't think chemical castration is one of those accommodations. I don't think that is a reasonable accommodation for you to medicate yourself, to lower or destroy your sex drive, your natural libido, which you've rediscovered by going off birth control. This is one of the side effects of birth control that isn't often talked about, that it can really alter a woman's libido and it can sometimes really alter a, a woman's sexual interests and drives. Uh, some women aren't aware of their kinks till they go off birth control. There's been some writing a few years ago. I'd have to dig it up. Uh, but there was writing about the fact that women date and choose partners on birth control, that they marry on birth control. And there's some research to show that women are attracted to different kinds of men when they're on birth control than then when they're off birth control. And people date, romance, uh, get engaged, get married on birth control. Then they go off birth control because they want to have kids and they look at their partner like, oh my God. Who the fuck are you and why am I married to you, right? That's one of the problems with hormonal birth control. Hormones play a big role in our lives, not just as women. Women aren't hormone-soaked crazy monsters. Men are also hormone-soaked crazy monsters. We're testosterone-soaked crazy monsters. But we're not on birth control. We're not out there dating and moving through the world, taking a, a drug every day that changes our hormonal levels and makeup and composition. Women are. So my advice to you is really run with the accommodation that you've been given, which is an open R where the ladies are concerned. Then he needs to ramp it up a little bit. He needs to make a little bit of an effort to be a little bit more sexually open and accommodating to you, which can mean, you know, one accommodation in a low libido, high libido is, you know, the, the low libido partner shouldn't have to have sex when they don't want to have sex. But sometimes a low libido partner can help the higher libido partner get off when they need to get off to be a lovely and accommodating masturbatory aid to hold someone while they're masturbating, to be with them, to mutter some dirty things about what you're going to do to them later when you're feeling it. That's not so hard, really. It isn't. And if your partner can do that once or twice a week on top of the once or twice a week, you're already having sex on top of there being some allowance for you to seek outside sexual contact, which he is also allowed or should be. That is a reasonable accommodation or a, or a set of reasonable accommodations that allow for you two to stay together 
without there being, you know, acid and cracks all over your relationship because of this sexual dissatisfaction and frustration that you would be experiencing that he would not from your needs not being met. Those are all reasonable accommodations. You medicating yourself for the rest of your life to flatline your libido and prune back your sexual interests so that your libido can more closely match his, that is an unreasonable accommodation. That is an unreasonable ask on his part. And now I'm going to throw a tiny little wrench into the works. Uh, when two people open their relationship because one person needs something outside of it, maybe, you know, he wants to do S and M and she doesn't. And so he goes and sees, uh, you know, goes to a BDSM sex club or joins a community group or sees a professional dominatrix every once in a while, if they can afford it. Uh, or, you know, in your case, you have a higher libido and he says, go mess around with girls every once in a while. And you're like, all right. Uh, the partner who has given the other partner that hall pass, that license, that, that, that accommodation for that partner to know that they can call it off or call a, you know, suspend it every once in a while, that they have the power to really yank that hall pass back. And sometimes, you know, that acts as a little security blanket that makes them more comfortable with you being out there in the world, knowing that if they're so uncomfortable or they're feeling so jealous or neglected, if you do spin a little out of control and you're out there banging girls and not there for him sexually or emotionally or intimately when he needs you because you are so focused elsewhere for him to be able to say, you know, we need to focus on each other for a little bit. So we're going to shut down for now for him to have that veto power. That can seem a little scary because you don't want to lose your new freedom but it can make him more secure with you having that freedom in the first place. I guess it's kind of a you know a little bit of a paradox. You have this freedom. He has the ability to extinguish it. I think in many cases, him having that ability, the part, the low libido partner, the hall pass giving partner, having the ability to yank that back makes him less likely to want to yank that back. Especially if, when they do, if they do, you respect it and you you demonstrate to them that they do come first and you can. In respecting it and in, in, in halting outside contact for a while, get that hall pass back when they see that they are important enough to you that they are still your first concern, first focus, their comfort, safety, security. So do what you're doing now. Let him have that ability to yank it back, yank the hall pass back if he needs to. But negotiate an understanding that if he does need to yank it back, that doesn't mean it's forever yanked back. That that is a temporary suspension of your new freedom while you guys reconnect. And he, when he feels more secure, that you learn it back. Hi, Dan. This is a 30-year-old straight female from Western Washington. Um, I've been married to my husband for about two and a half years. We've been together for about seven and a half years. And recently, we've been talking more about sort of fantasies and turn-ons and things like that. When we got together, we never talked about necessarily being monogamous forever or exclusivity for the duration of our marriage. Uh, it was just kind of assumed, as a lot of people just sort of assume, that when you're married, you're monogamous, um, which I know is not good. But we've never discussed it before. And as we've been talking more about our fantasies and everything, I've debated asking him whether he wants really wants to be monogamous and exclusive forever. Um, but I know that I do want to be monogamous, and I don't want other partners. And that I also am not really comfortable with or open to the idea of him having other partners. So what is, is there any merit in me asking him this, knowing that if he said that he did want other partners, 
that I would just be sort of shutting them down and saying, well, you can't have them too bad. Um, I don't want to exist in a place where he might have this secret desire or some need that's not being met. And I just stick my head under the sand, but um, I don't really know if I should open that can of worms if I might not be ready for what's inside. So I think this is a terrible plan. (laughs) What is? At least the way you framed it to us, that you're going to ask him how he feels about monogamy and if he ever wants to be maybe in an open relationship without first telling him that that is not okay with you and that is not what you want. Right? Because mm-hmm. what if he says... Yeah, that doesn't sound good. No, that's terrible. Because what if he says yes? He's like, oh, I've always wanted to be in a relationship. I was meaning to bring that up with you. I'm so glad that we're on the same page. And then you blow up at him. The, the way you framed it, and maybe that's not the way you intended to ask it, but the way you framed it, the way you, you unpack it to us and suggest that this is how you're going to lay it out to him, it sounded like you were setting a trap for him to walk into. So then you could be... No, inst- definitely definitely not what I intended to do. I, and that's why I was wondering like, if it's even worth asking if I know that I don't want that. But um, I don't know. I just... I don't want to like have him you know have something that we've never talked about that he's always wondered about but like why I do I don't think know. it's good to have That's a con- it's good to have a conversation about it you know I was I was speaking to a, a marriage and family therapist who I'm going to have on the show soon uh, about this that the difference between gay relationships and straight relationships on the monogamy question there are monogamous gay couples out there but it's always a conversation it's like are we going to be mm-hmm. monogamous or not it's an opt in thing for gay couples so it's it's negotiated. It's not just a, an assumption, and it's an assumption for most straight couples. Like you said, like we got married, and of course, marriage's default setting is monogamous. And so, we mm-hmm. never, you guys never even talked about monogamy. You just both assumed you assumed he felt the same way you did, and vice versa, or he assumed that you know maybe he felt differently about it, but knew he couldn't say anything, so he's just you know towing the monogamous line because that's what expected of him and marriage and straight guys, and he's fine with that. Or maybe he's totally into monogamy. But you guys never had a conversation, so you don't actually know where he is. Uh-huh. And it leaves you feeling a little worried and insecure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now if we got together now, I would have asked him because I listened to your show. It was a good conversation. I didn't listen seven years ago, well, eight years ago. It's not too late to have the conversation. But there's a couple of things I want to put in your head before you have it. You said in your call, like, what if he has a secret desire to sleep with other somebody else? What if there's some unmet need? And I'm here to tell you he has secret desires to fuck other people. Absolutely. He does. Mm-hmm. And there are unmet needs. Absolutely. There are. Because no two people can be all things to each other sexually, period, mm-hmm. the end. So there's always going to be some end met something or other peripherally, hopefully, and not tons of things. So somebody is fulfilled and you know they may like every once in a while think about, oh, that one thing that I can't do. But it's worth not doing that thing because look who I'm with, right? That's part of the price mm-hmm. of admission, right? And also, you know, do you ever see a hot guy and think, I would love to fuck the shit out of him? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't have any illusions that he doesn't want to fuck other people. My more question is, like, is he okay with the price of admission? Like, is he, you know, totally fine with that and ready to, you know, just just be me for the rest of his life? Well, that's the conversation you should have, but you have to start with that premise. You don't ask him an open-ended question about, you know, how do you feel about non-monogamy? Dot, 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 mm-hmm. because you don't want him yeah, to feel like you tricked him or he stepped on a ring. He might think I'm, I'm about to ask him to have a threesome or something. <laughs> right. And so I, I think what you say to him is, you know, openness is always in the news and people talk about open relationships and marriages. That's something I never wanted for myself. And we never really talked about it specifically, but I'm monogamy. And I assumed you were too. Where are mm-hmm. you on that? And if, but you have to be prepared to hear him say, you know what? I might, I could see myself in a non-monogamous relationship, but but I'm not, and I never will be because I'm going to be with you forever. But I, I could have been, but I'm not. Uh-huh. Like, and you have to be okay with that answer if that is his answer. And it might not be. 
Yeah. He might say, yeah, and I would oh. be, I'd be okay with that answer as long as he's gonna, you know, be monogamous with me, then that's fine. Can I ask how long you guys have been together? We've been together for like seven and a half years and we've been married for two and a half years. Okay. I just want to say that where you are now, and I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be wanting what you're wanting. I'm not saying you don't know yourself or know your desires or, or, or know what your needs are or requirements are in this relationship. I'm just saying like two, three, four decades into a marriage, something that's very important at the start can be less important then. Like if you reach yeah. a stage where, you know, he's medically incapacitated and isn't capable of having sex and has no libido and no interest, you may reach a stage where you guys release each other from the monogamous constraint that you guys both willingly are adhering to now, right? Mm-hmm. The relationship that you want is lifelong, right? Mm-hmm. And over the course of a multi-decade relationship, the things can change. Accommodations may need to be made. Negotiations may need to be reopened so that you guys can stay together and stay happy. So I'm not saying you're doing it wrong. I'm not saying you must be non-monogamous now or out of the gate. But when I hear people say, I never, ever could be in an open relationship or non-monogamous relationship, I often think of the letters I get from people who were monogamous for 25 or 30 years and are now not because their circumstances changed so radically. Mm-hmm. So I just want to put that in your head. Yeah, I, I like to, I like to think I'm pretty open-minded. And although I know that definitely that's not something I would want at all right now, I am kind of a never-say-never kind of person. So um, I believe that I have the capacity to change my feelings on that. I right. also don't want to like set any expectation for him that that is going to be the case someday in case it's not. <laughs> and, and I think and I think you're very articulate about all this stuff. So I, I, I think you can have this conversation without making him feel like it was a trap or he stepped on a rake. Just be very explicit as you, before you ask the question that monogamous is who you are and what you want and what you expect right now and indefinitely uh-huh. until decades later. You know, you don't even have to say that. Just it's who you are, what you want. Just to keep it in the back of your head that circumstances change over the course of money decades together. And you may at some point or he may at some point need an accommodation or a renegotiation or something. But that, that is a uh-huh. long way off if it ever happens at all. You know, sometimes people, they, they get to that point where they make that renegotiation. They feel like they're betraying who they are, what the relationship was. And it, no, no, it's circumstances change and, and uh-huh. you adapt. Definitely. But I well, was, that sounds like a good plan. The reason I was calling was just like to desperately try to intervene <laughs> before you asked an open-ended question because you might not like the I, – I, it was making me think of all those women. It's almost always women who ask their male partners what their secret, darkest, most you know, uh, beloved you know, private sexual fantasies are and they importune and they ask and ask and they reassure their partners that, that whatever it is, they won't judge. And then the guy says what it is and they get dumped. Because yeah. it's, it's never I want to light a thousand tiny tea candles and put them all over the apartment <laughs> and put rose petals on the bed like Rachel did for – or like Ross did for Rachel in that episode of Friends you saw when you were 12. That is never a guy's secret fantasy. If there are tea candles involved, a thousand tea candles are being stuffed up his ass by your sister. <laughs> Guys have twisted fucking fantasy. And your, your yeah. call sort of reminded – like made me think of that question that women often ask their male partners – unprepared for what the real answer is. And I didn't want you to do the same thing with the monogamy question. Didn't want you to frame yeah. it in that, hey, what do you think? You have to frame it as, here's what I think. Yeah. Where are we? Yeah, I guess you kind of have to do that. Like my only thing with um, asking him in that way is that he's like, he's a pretty accommodating person. And a lot of times I feel like if I ask him things like, oh, do you want to do this or whatever? Are you okay with this? 
that he just wants to be compliant. So he'll be like, okay, that's fine. So even if he doesn't, I, want, I guess there's not really any he, other way that I can ask him that. Even if he doesn't him. want to be monogamous, you do want him to be compliant with the monogamous model, do you not? True. So that's not a problem. If if he's just <laughs> complying with what you want in this instance, that is that is yeah, what you require to be married to you. And he can't say, I never opened up the conversation. So Exactly. I wish you well. I, I wish your monogamous, closed relationship every success. I hope you never reach a point where there's any need for an accommodation or a renegotiation. I hope you guys go the distance and are successful. I am not the enemy of a monogamous commitment. I support your monogamous commitment. <laughs> I know you do. I, I, I know that people always say you don't, but I believe that. <laughs> I am 100% support of your, your whole monogamy thing. I think it's a sick and twisted uh, alternative lifestyle that I don't quite understand. <laughs> And my husband and I will be devastated if any of our children are monogamous, but I support you. <laughs> are you going to have more children? Uh, no, I'm just being full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a good day. All right. Thanks. You too. Hi, Dan. I have a question that's really more conceptual than it is about my own relationship, perhaps for a change, but I'm a straight white female. I live in New Orleans and I moved here for a PhD program where we deal a lot with issues of gender and sexuality. Personally, I've lived in a lot of big cities, and I've always had good friends that are openly out or from a number of different kinds of relationships. So my question really is that in Louisiana, I meet a lot of people who ask me questions where, you know, they're not coming from a place of judgment. They're really honestly trying to educate themselves about you know, gay culture and what it means. And I think they ask me because I'm a safe audience and and they can ask me whatever they want. But the two biggest questions that I get are, first of all, how do you know who is the male and who is the female in a gay relationship? And the second biggest question really is about why are all gay men effeminate and what does that mean? And, and the wor- of course, the worst follow-up question that is, how come they can't just tone it down? And you and I know that these are ridiculous questions, but they are honestly just asking me. And so I guess I need a vocabulary about how to answer them. And I am this weird representative for like gay, gay men in particular in Louisiana. It's very strange. And Um, Anyway, how can I answer them without getting really offended myself? I'm going to rattle through the answers to these questions, the hypotheticals, the things you're hearing from people with questions about gay men that they can't ask gay men, but they're asking you because you know gay men. Uh, Who's the man and who's the woman? Well, what you mean by that is how do the gender roles shake out? And, you know, if you're a guy and you're a husband but you like to cook, are you the wife while you cook? No, you're still the husband while you cook. Some gay relationships, you know, the, the roles shake out very gendered. Where like one does everything that's kind of the guy shit. One does everything that's kind of the girl shit. In most gay relationships, it's a jumble. Just like in most straight relationships, it's a jumble. There are some guys who are married to do the laundry and some women who are married to opposite sex partners who fix the car. There is no – woman in the relationship. There are gender, there's gender shit shakes out differently. Why so effeminate? Why are all gay men so effeminate? You just say to them, they're the ones that you notice. It's confirmation bias. Why don't you go Google confirmation bias? Like the effeminate gay guys, you can spot them. And so you go, oh, look, another gay guy. All gay guys are like that because all the gay guys I see or all the gay guys that you realize are gay are like that. 
confirmation bias. And then, you know, you pivot to the last question. How come they can't tone it down? They do. All the gay men that you don't notice have toned it down. They're not effeminate. Not that they've toned it down because that implies that gay men who are infeminate are cranking it up. No, some men are just effeminate. That's who they actually, honestly, truly are. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you have a problem with gay guys who are feminine, you have a problem with femininity. You think there's something wrong with being feminine. It's not wrong for a woman to be feminine, not wrong for a man to be feminine. So you just like answer the questions. That's how I would answer them if they were put to me. The other question, the sort of overarching question is what to do when people ask you these kind of you know, you want to say offensive, but how about faultily premised questions instead of offensive? You answer them. You don't blow up at people. Whether you're the straight person who's known to have a lot of queer friends or you're the queer person who gets asked this question. I get asked these questions all the time by people who are sincerely curious. These are people who are trying to work through and get past their homophobia or their transphobia. When people ask this question, why are they so – why are so many of them so effeminate? Why can't they tone it down? I see not some asshole asking an asshole question that's homophobic and offensive and I should blow up in their faces. I see somebody actively trying to work through their hangups and issues with gay people. And it is my job at that moment not to shame them for that, not to scold them, not to wrap their knuckles, but to help them, to help them work through it. Because if they're asking me who's gay, if they're asking you who's known to be down with the gays, they're not asking some bigot. They're not just looking to have their bigotry reaffirmed. They're actually looking to have their bigotry diffused. And it's your job to diffuse it at that moment. Not to say, oh, that's a terrible question. How could you ask that? They'll get that it's a dumb, stupid question once you finish answering it. They'll go, oh, oh, yeah, right. Oh, that was a stupid question. That's so satisfying. When someone asks you a really stupid question and you answer it intelligently, honestly, in good faith, and then to hear them say, oh, yeah, that was that was a really stupid question, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was a really stupid question. But they would have become really defensive and shut down if you said, stupid question, here's your answer. No, no, no. Here's your answer. Let the stupid question realization be theirs. Not an accusation that you hurl at them, but a realization that they come to on their own. And you will have advanced the cause. You will have done a mitzvah in that moment. I welcome those questions from stupid people. <laughs> I don't, wouldn't call them stupid to their faces. I welcome those stupid questions from people who are trying to work through their homophobia who are not otherwise stupid. I welcome them. They are opportunities. You don't blow up at people at that moment. You take them by their hands and you explain. We're going to take a quick break from the calls just to have another conversation about Truveda, as I like to call it, or Truvada, as people who know how to pronounce that word call it. Uh, Zachary Quinto, who's an actor, star of the Star Trek movies, um, gave an interview to Out Magazine where he talked about Truvada and AIDS, and he said some things that kind of blew up and became a, a little bit of a controversy. Uh, here he is. AIDS has lost the edge of horror it possessed when it swept through the world in the 80s, Quinto told Out. Uh, today's generation sees it more as something to live with and something to be much less fearful of, and that comes with a sense of, dare I say, laziness. He goes on, we need to be really vigilant and open about the fact that these drugs, like Truvada, are not to be taken to increase our ability to have recreational sex. There is an incredible underlying irresponsibility to that way of thinking, and we don't yet know enough about this vein of medication to see where it takes us down the line. Damon Jacobs is a New York-based licensed marriage and family therapist. He has an issue with things Quinto said. I have an issue also with some of the things Quinto said. Uh, Damon Jacobs is also an HIV prevention advocate, author of two books, Rational Relating and Absolutely Shouldless. And he is known for backing and really championing 
the use of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Prophylaxis is a hard word to say. Is it not, Damon? Prophylaxis. If you say it enough, it just kind of rolls right off your tongue. I, prophylaxis, prophylaxis does not roll off my tongue uh, very easily. Okay, you go first. What fucking flipped you out or annoyed you about Quinto's comments? Well, let's just even begin with the idea that there is such a thing as recreational sex, quote unquote, because it, that has no real basis in any kind of medical or scientific or educational context. Well, actually, you know, my, t- my issue with that is, is let's, uh, there's no other kind of gay sex. Like there's procreational, recreational. That's the, that's the binary when people talk about recreational sex, like procreational, recreational. Gay people don't have procreational sex. I think what he means is that any sex outside of a relationship that sex within a relationship is for more than just recreation. It's for – it's lovemaking and that's OK. And then gay sex in the context of a relationship gets the gong and it's fine. But outside of that, if it's just – you're just having fun with your junk, that's irresponsible. I think that's the point. Right. And God forbid we would, have, we would have fun with our junk. God forbid that gay people would enjoy pleasurable, intimate encounters with multiple partners in safe and responsible ways. Mm-hmm. And what uh, Mr. Quinto's position seems to be is that having monogamous, quote-unquote, sex, even though we know that very little of that actually exists in the gay male community, but in theory that that is a better way to have sex, that it's a safer way to have sex. Um, Statistically, Dan, we know that the majority of new HIV infections now in this country occur in the context of, quote-unquote, main relationships, according to the CDC studies, Mm -hmm. Um, that 68% of new infections occur in the context of a main relationship. So love is not the best protector from HIV under any circumstances. What is? But what, a, what do you think is the best protector against HIV infection? Well, I think PrEP in terms of efficacious implementation is the highest way that we have to <clears throat> protect from HIV right now. Mm-hmm. And study after study has shown that if people take it consistently greater than four or more times a week, I prefer to take it daily as my, for my own use, but if we take it more four or more times a week, we have greater than 96% protection from HIV if we're exposed to HIV. Now, I'm not putting down condoms. I'm not anti-condoms. I'm just saying, let's just say you're not consistent with your condom use as most gay and bisexual men are not. And then you're having sex without a condom. If you don't use that condom at that moment, you have 0% protection from HIV if you're exposed. Mm-hmm. If you're using PrEP consistently on a regular basis, you have greater than 92% efficacy protection from HIV, even if you're not taking it exactly every day. Okay, let's jump back to something. Uh, is it Quinto or Quinto? I'm, I mispronounce everything. I read, I read, I don't listen, and then I say <laughs> things out loud. And I don't you say Trevada, I say Trevada, you say Quinto, I'll say Quinto. Okay, so Quinto sure. also said that this generation, today's generation, uh, sees it as more something to live with uh, and something to be much less fearful of. Well, the fact is we can live with it now. People who are infected, who have uh, low viral loads or zero viral load, uh, undetectable viral loads, who are on medication, who are, have access to health care, now are estimated to have as long a life expectancy as someone who's not infected. So yes, we can live with it. And it is much less fearsome, fearful, like we're less afraid. And I think that it isn't irrational to take you know, the realities of AIDS now into account when you're making choices around what kind of protections you're going to use or how are you going to protect yourself. And that seems to be what he's suggesting, that people are being irrational when they look at AIDS now and decide it is less scary 
And then they weigh that into their risk reward benefit analysis when they make their sexual choices. And I don't think that's irrational. And I got in a lot of trouble when the drugs first appeared or before they appeared, you know, when people started doing zero sorting and negotiated safety. That's what Terry and I did. And we, I wrote about it and talked about it. And people blew up at me saying I was suggesting that AIDS was less scary now, but it is. And we have a right well, to medically, take it, it is. And, and weigh that. And medically, it is. It, it is. I mean, it is a treatable chronic condition. It is still one we want to prevent. It is still inconvenient, um, but it's definitely treatable and chronic. And this is the medical position. This is not a moral position mm-hmm. that HIV is a treatable chronic condition. Now, again, Mr. Quinto decided to use the term AIDS, which is rarely ever even used these days, except for people who have advanced stages of HIV. So to expect an entire generation of people who didn't actually see a lot of the death and devastation station, Dan, that you and I saw in the early days, to expect them to live in reaction of the horror of something they never experienced, that is irrational. How old are you? I'm 43. Okay, I'm 50. Just turned 50. I know. Smell me, all right? Uh, I saw a lot of the death and devastation, but that has left me, clearly I think it's left me a little bit more uh, battle-scarred or fearful than you are. You're you're taking Truvada, Truvada. Uh, I'm not. Um, you've talked about how you've stopped using condoms, uh, and not with one partner, but with multiple partners. Am I mischaracterizing your remarks? No, that is absolutely correct. I am very open about that. Okay. So are you not afraid of syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia? Let's just say I'm not going to live in fear of that. But what I do take comfort in is knowing that I am being screened every three months in compliance with the CDC guidelines for anyone who's using PrEP. Mm -hmm. I am being screened every three months. That includes chlamydia. That includes gonorrhea. That includes syphilis. But but people talk about screening as if it provides some sort of retroactive immunity or if it's a cure or a treatment. It's not. It just finds out Mm -hmm. if you've been exposed or infected, right? Exposed and infected, not or infected. Um, and so screening every three months, if you're, you know, having multiple partners and you're on Truvada, which is taking responsibility for protecting yourself from HIV, you know, it's not going to protect you screening and Truvada from <laughs> drug resistant strains of gonorrhea that are emerging or the syphilis epidemic that is raging in the gay community. Okay, but here's what's missing in that question that you're asking. There's a presumption that this kind of sex is happening in my life and in everybody else's life because we're using PrEP. What the actual facts are is that most people have given up consistent condom use long before PrEP ever became available. And this was reported last year by Don Smith of the CDC. People people have been saying that for a long time. Like there's been dodgy condom compliance. I can pull up articles I wrote 25 years ago about dodgy condom compliance. But but most of everybody is an idiot, right? Most people are (laughs) – most most everybody isn't very proactive about their own health or safety and people engage in sort of wishful or dickful thinking and think it can't happen to them. Uh But you're a smart, informed guy. You're a – a marriage and family therapist. You you are an expert on HIV prevention. Um, you're not, you know, the idiot who won't put a condom on or doesn't know how or engages mm-hmm. in wishful thinking, right, about odds mm-hmm. and statistics. And yet, right. and so, God, I don't know where I'm going with this. Just for me, like condoms were never just about HIV. Condoms were about ultimately, in the end, all sorts of other potentially sexually transmitted infections as well. And I see it, and you're the first person I've actually gotten to talk to about this on the show. I see a lot of people taking Truvada and stopping with condoms as if HIV is the only thing we have to worry about. And, it, and, and, I'm, and I really want to nail you down on this. Are you not worried about these other things? 
I am not living in fear of those other things because if I have any signs or symptoms of any of these things, I've got a much better relationship with my doctor now than I ever had before I was on PrEP. So any signs of anything gone awry, I'm on the phone and I'm going to make that appointment. Second more, I have this natural screening process every three months. And what we've seen with people who use PrEP is that, no, it's true that, that if you're not going to use condoms, you will not have protection uh, from getting an STD. But when you're using PrEP and getting screened every three months, you're stopping the spread of STDs versus the scenario where people are not on PrEP, not using condoms and spreading STDs consistently without anyone ever looking at that. A lot of STDs, you're not going to see signs of with uh, anal rectal gonorrhea. You're not always going to see the signs. Mm -hmm. But if you're consistently going to your doctor and talking with your doctor and getting screened every three months, you will be treated for that. Okay, so you may so be... The other thing to remember, Dan, we're not talking about risk elimination. We're talking about harm reduction. Right. We're not talking about the elimination of STDs. We're not talking about the elimination of risk. We're talking about a medical scientific oh. practice that significantly reduces risk. You don't, reduces. you don't have to lecture me about that. I'm the guy who gets into trouble for telling people that they have a right to take risks when it comes to sex. We don't. There's no safe yes. snowboarding. There's no safe chicken salad. Somebody's going to go snowboarding this month and die slamming into a tree or falling into a crevasse. Somebody's going to eat chicken salad today and die from salmonella poisoning. We apply this standard to sex if it has to be 100% risk-free or you're just crazy or irrational or psycho or self-destructive if you engage in it. We apply that standard only to sex and no other human people drive and die and fly and die and jump out of planes and die. You know, death is a risk and there's always risk. And I think it, it's a sex negative – it's evidence of how sex negative the culture is that we want to have this single standard, this double standard for sex and nothing else. That sex has to be 100% safe and it ever, it never is. Even in the context of, as you pointed out earlier, a monogamous or presumably monogamous exclusive committed relationship is not always safe. Right. Um, and, and even right. if it's safe from disease, you're not necessarily safe from intimate partner violence. You're not necessarily safe from pregnancy and all sorts of other terrible, terrible, horrible potential outcomes. Um, I guess, you know, maybe it's the difference in our ages. And I, I'm not saying you're being cavalier. It sounds like you're being really responsible, but I'm just sitting on the sidelines, biting my nails, uh, as worried because worrying is what I do. Cause I have my mother's worst case scenario disorder, WCSD, we call it in my house, um, worried that, you know, the unintended potential consequence of this is a, a, a syphilis have been getting worse than it already is. The and you say you know screening and you catch it, but if you if the screening catches uh, the fact that you've acquired uh, gonorrhea that cannot be treated, the screening isn't going to get you into a treatment that works because it can't be treated. Or the emergence of a new, currently unknown, fatal sexually transmitted infection. If we recreate the same dynamics that existed uh, for gay men in the sixties and seventies, and I'm, I, I I worry about that, and I don't think, and I'm well, not, yeah. and I'm not a fucking prude, but I worry about that. I know, and those are legitimate worries, but keep in mind, those worries are not specific to PrEP. Remember, most, even with, forget anal sex, most guys don't use condoms for oral sex. So every single STD you are worried about can be transmitted through oral sex. When's the last time you gave a blowjob with latex? For most men, that never happens. Now, let's say someday down the road, we're going to have a cure. We're going to have a vaccine for HIV. We're going to have these more effective ways to prevent HIV. Then all of your concerns will be just as legitimate then as they are now. The only thing I'm saying is that PrEP is not to be held liable for these concerns. These okay. concerns are legitimate and valid no matter what. Okay. I will concede the point. Damon Jacobs, New York-based licensed marriage and family therapist. Pick up his books, Rational Relating 
and absolutely should list. He's a champion, obviously, and a very persuasive one, an articulate one, of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Thanks for jumping on the phone today, Damon. Thank you so much, Dan. Take care. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 27-year-old married woman. Um, I've been with my husband for 20 years now, and we recently decided to start opening up our relationship in a poly sort of way. So because we're just starting out, we have like a couple rules, nothing too crazy, but the major rule at first was to be no penetration. He started dating this girl very casually, and at, at one point they were fooling around, and one thing led to another, and they ended up having sex. Now, I'm not that mad about that because I sort of figured, you know, in the heat of the moment, things get a little crazy and it can be hard to say no. The thing is, he knew our rule about no penetration. And I I acknowledge my husband definitely has fault in this and we're working on that. But I feel that he has some fault in this too because as somebody who calls herself Polly, even though I now don't really believe that she understands what, I don't know, maybe she has a different definition of it, but, you know, as a person, you respect the other person or the other couple's rules, and she knew about our rule, and sort of in the heat of the moment, he first said no, and then with, you know, she didn't really have to twist his arm, but with a little bit more, oh, can we, he gave in and said, okay, yeah. So my question is, I kind of feel like she definitely disrespected me and he and he and his is in my relationship. And can I, I mean, I want to say something to her, but I don't want to be like this crazy wife. And, but I do kind of feel like I somewhat deserve to be like, Hey, not okay. This was not right. And I mean, he's ending it with her, but what can I like as a like a reasonable, not crazy human say to her? One of the impressions that people who are not poly have of poly relationships and poly scenes is that they are just drama engines, that they are the cold fusion of drama, that they just can make it out of nothing, right? It just drama, drama, drama. You know, couples are create drama and you don't have to you don't want to be with someone who makes drama when you're in a coupled relationship because drama comes along whether you're trying to make it or not. But from outside, it can look like a poly relationship are just a lot of fucking drama because, you know, I think the capacity for drama increases exponentially as there are more connections and more relationships and more commitments and more potential broken rules and betrayals. I don't think you should play into perhaps this misimpression that so many people have of poly that they're, they're just these drama machines. Uh, by confronting this woman, the person who really did something wrong, the person who betrayed you is this guy, this man, your partner. He broke the rules that she asked him to break them and he went ahead and broke them. He broke the rule, right? And your response to her is to, I guess, ice her out. Like she's revealed herself to be not someone you can trust with your husband's dick. Period. The end. And you are, and your husband is withdrawing his dick from her figuratively now already having withdrawn it literally presumably she's not standing there having this conversation with you with his dick still in this woman and instead of 
pouring fuel on the fire instead of calling her to process your hurt feelings and her role and this betrayal and this, this, the breaking of this rule that you guys had that she was aware of. Just fucking ice her out. Don't call her. Don't have anything to do with her. She's obviously revealed herself to be untrustworthy and kind of shitty and period, the end, and scene. Fiend, the curtain comes down. It's over. Why extend the life of the drama and the hurt by confronting her? Just take your husband, take your bat and ball, and go. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old female living in the Midwest. My question today has to do with an incident that happened several years ago. I suppose it was about five years ago now. Um, I was 19. I was in college. And I went to visit a friend at another university. And I was in kind of a strange situation where a friend of a friend organized a meetup with a guy who I had previously had sex with um, consensually. And uh, I was intoxicated. I wasn't aware that the meetup had been arranged. I ended up in a room with this guy, and he kind of took previous sexual contact as, as uh, acting consent. And I was not down for it, and he ended up uh, having sex with me anyway. I felt extremely violated and not comfortable with bringing it forward, not comfortable with myself. I went through a whole process of, you know, counseling, talking it out, and I completely moved past the issue and feel stronger for it. The problem is now that my brother is now attending the university that this guy went to, and uh, this guy still lives in the area, um, has graduated from the university, and he's still very active in the fraternity life in the frat that my brother has joined, and they have actually become pretty good friends. I don't, I, I don't want to mess this guy's up, the guy's, you know, image up. I don't want to mess up anything that he has going for him. I just. I'm not comfortable with the relationship he now has with my brother. I made a lot of mistakes at the time of the assault. He definitely knows that it was not consensual. He definitely knows that it was wrong. But he was pretty severely intoxicated, and I'm not sure how much he remembers, and I'm not sure if he even knows the extent to which he violated me. I'm just, I'm concerned because my brother is going on a trip with him and a bunch of other uh, fraternity brothers, and I was hoping to visit my brother while he's on this trip, and I just, I don't know what to say to him, and I don't know if I should even bring it up, but I'm just feeling really uncomfortable about the whole thing. I'm glad that you processed this. I'm glad that you got counseling uh, after you were assaulted, after this date rape, after this rape rape. Uh, I'm glad that you've moved past this issue, your words, and you feel the stronger for it. Uh, but I don't think you're done processing this entirely. If you say, I'm just going to quote you. I don't know if he, the guy who raped you is aware of the extent to which he violated me. I think you need to make him aware of the extent to which he violated you, that that is a part of moving past it. Uh, that should be a part of feeling the stronger for it. You should, Confront him. You don't have to go in and beat the fuck out of him, although that might be very satisfying. I think you need to make him aware that that was a violation, that that was date rape, that 
Although you say there had been some sort of sexual contact uh, between the two of you before that night, there was no consent that night and he barreled ahead anyway and you left that event feeling violated. And he left that event either cognizant of the fact that he had taken advantage of you and raped you or unaware of the fact that he had raped you. Either is not okay, right? He was so fucked up himself that he didn't he, – he wasn't conscious of the fact that he was forcing himself on you. Or he was so fucked up but he was aware of the fact that he was forcing himself on you. I have my suspicions about a guy who graduates from college and remains in a college town and remains active in his friend. Uh, you know, a guy who never leaves his fraternity is usually not the best product of that fraternity, usually not the best example of a decent frat guy. So I have my suspicions about him and about, you know, whether or not he was ignorant of what went down that night. You say that he was so fucked up also. People can be really fucked up and still make conscious choices, including the choice to violate someone, including the choice to Consent to sex in an impaired state. People do do that. But this guy who raped you, it was either an unintentional rape, a, a rape on a technicality, and I'm going to get slaughtered for saying that. If he was so fucked up, he couldn't read you and didn't realize that you didn't want it to happen and you weren't saying, you say you were not down with it. I hope you communicated that. And I'm not faulting you if you didn't. Women are socialized to not say no to men. <sighs> women, God, such a – culturally, the position that women are in. Faulted and shamed if you want something and faulted and shamed if you say you don't want it. Not allowed to have any agency at all. But you were not down with it. He had sex with you anyway. Right. He needs to know that he didn't get away with it. He needs to know this guy still involved at this frat – still actively participating in the socialization of 18-year-old guys who are entering his frat, he needs to know. One way or the other, he needs to know that he didn't get away with it. Whether he realizes he raped you or not, he needs to know that he raped you. If he is a rapist, he needs to know that the women he's raped are going to come after him eventually, Cosby style, that you're going to get up in his fucking face and hold him accountable, that accountability will come to him. If this was a booze-fueled miscommunication that left you feeling so violated and he is an otherwise decent guy who would never want to do that to a woman, he needs to know that he did that to a woman so that he doesn't do that again. But either way, you can't bring a prosecution now, most likely. I don't know. Call the cops. Talk to the authorities in your area. See what they say. Most likely you cannot bring a prosecution, but you can bring accountability. You can get in touch with him. You can lay it out for him what happened that night. You can get in touch with the national chapter of his fraternity and object to this man still being involved in this frat, this man who raped you. You can forward him the article from Rolling Stone. You can let them know that fraternities are all suspended from the University of Virginia because of this kind of shit going down. And there not being any accountability or any responsibility taken. Perhaps in the wake of Cosby, in the wake of UVA, a national fraternal organization will take this shit more seriously. But you can make this guy aware of the extent to which he violated you. You should, and you will feel, in your own words, I promise you, you will feel the stronger for it. And when you've done that, I think you say to your brother, out of an abundance of sisterly concern, you say to your brother, this happened to me at that frat that you joined. 
Don't be that guy. Don't enable those guys. This is how it impacted me. Every girl that comes into that building is somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. Share your pain with your brother. And if it pains you further to know that your brother is hanging out with this guy, tell him that. It has to be accountability. There's only accountability when victims are empowered to speak up. And I am attempting to. You are. You are empowered to speak up. You're calling me, asking me for permission to talk to your brother about it. There you go. You have permission to talk to your brother about it. You said in your call something along the lines of you haven't really said anything to this guy or anybody else because you didn't want to ruffle his feathers, upset him, put him in an awkward position. Look at the position he's put you in. Ruffle his fucking feathers. Pluck his fucking feathers. And I really think in the wake of what's going down nationally with the Bill Cosby scandal and with the wake of what's going down at the University of Virginia, the suspension of all fraternities on campus because of a culture of rape running out of control – you get in touch with the national chapter of the fraternity that this guy is still involved with. And you tell them what happened. This is a really difficult subject to talk about. It really is. And I've been running my mouth, I don't know, for six or seven or eight minutes here, and I probably put a foot wrong. I want to invite people who think I got some part of this call wrong or my response wrong to please call in with your own advice and perspective. And we will run a bunch of other people's thoughts about this particular circumstance and about how to address this culture. So I want to invite other people who've been listening, who have your own ideas, your own advice for this call, or who think I put a foot wrong or framed something incorrectly to please call and share your perspective, your criticisms. We will run them on a future show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 53-year-old male, straight but not narrow, currently single and dating. I'm knowledgeable and comfortable with my body and sex and sexuality in general, and I've had some experience with light swinging and swapping in an earlier relationship. I'm not really a swinger per se, and I'm not much of a fetish guy either. For me, mostly vanilla sex is best, but I am willing to try most things. So here's my problem. I just don't get the bondage and discipline thing. It doesn't turn me on at all, and in fact, it just doesn't make intellectual sense to me. I mean, if the person is giving permission to be tied up, then that's not really bondage, is it? That just seems lame to me. And if I make the wrong assumption, and truly tie up someone against your will, then that's an assault, and that's not sexy either. I understand it's a fantasy game, but it's just not one I understand. Well, all of that wouldn't be such a terrible problem, except nearly every woman I date, or even talk to in a sexually flirty way, eventually makes allusions to bondage, some jokingly, but some more overtly. I can't help but think that for some of them at least, this is a subtle way to clue me into their expectations or desires. And now, with the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey, bondage is currently the only thing. Every woman I've dated has read it, and one in particular, with whom I have an off-and-on sexual relationship, is actively looking forward to the release of the movie, to which I suppose I'm expected to go with her. I've seen the previews, and it looks exceptionally stupid and unrealistic to me. So anyway, how do I deal with this? I mean, I'm a big believer in communication, but suppose I try to decide to try a bondage scenario with a woman. I mean, you can't ask in the middle of it all, so how am I doing? That kind of wrecks the domination fantasy, doesn't it? So do you plan ahead? Okay, you tie me here, but not too tight, and then you slap my ass five times, moderately hard, and then choke me a little, but not too much, and then call me a bad girl who needs to be punished, and then pull my hair. Jesus. I can't think of anything less sexy than a conversation like that. 
So even if I can figure out exactly what she likes, by the end of it, I'll probably be limp as a needle anyway because I just won't be turned on. So obviously you can see I have some stress over this. So I'm turning to you. Is bondage really as popular in the mainstream as it seems to be? Will I be seen as hopelessly square if I don't indulge someone who has hinted that they want to be tied up? And is it possible for an old dog like me to find a way to get my head into bondage so I can be a better sex partner? Can a person be trained to find something arousing? If you're not interested in it, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do BDSM or learn how to like bondage. Uh, if it doesn't turn you on, it doesn't turn you on. You just have to be explicit about that. I can't. I have no feel for this. I have no. This doesn't vibe for me sexually at all, and I think I wouldn't enjoy it. I think you wouldn't enjoy it if I did it with you. It would just be a disconnect. So, if bondage is what you're after, you'll have to move along and find some other partner. You can say that. Uh, you know, here's what's in it for people. Uh, one of the things you often hear from people into bondage is it's not bondage until you want to get out. And so people will consent to being tied up. As you say, you really do need someone's cooperation to tie them up. They'll consent to being tied up and then there reaches a point erotically where they're kind of, you know, un slightly uncomfortable or, you know, push them to their point of endurance and they want out and then you don't let them out and then it's bondage, right? And you can look them in the eye and say, this is what you wanted, right? And if they're still, if they're aroused, like it's, there's that inner tension, they are aroused. They are wet. They are hard. They are – they want out but they're still turned on and now they're turned on by the fact they're not letting them out. That's where the bondage comes into the bondage. Not at the beginning but toward the middle or end. Also, you know, bondage is often just a way to put somebody into a position that they'd like to be in any way for sex. If somebody likes to have sex laying down on their back and they're also into bondage, you can tie them up laying down on their back, spread eagle on the bed and then it's just – their favorite position, but not one they can get out of until you let them out of it. It can be very consensual and easy, breezy peasy and not 50 shades of gray BDSM bullshitty. Not that BDSM is bullshit, but the BDSM in 50 grades of shade. Not that BDSM is bullshit, but the BDSM in 50 shades of gray is bullshit. Bullshitty BDSM. But if it doesn't work for you, you don't have to do it. If it doesn't appeal to you, you don't have to do it. You just have to be honest about why it doesn't work for you. And yes, when you talk to people who are into kink and S&M, those negotiations around what you want, what you don't want, what you're into, what you're not into, you make this, you, you know, people will come up with this list of the activities they enjoy. And then where the top gets to be creative, they're not just hitting these marks, is jumbling those things together, is pushing the envelope subtly and, and in tiny little baby steps uh, as they get to know the person that they're topping better, that there is room for the top to improvise and play and surprise within the constraints of the bottom's limits. That's where the creativity, that's where the agency for the top in a bondage situation comes in. They're not just towing the line for the bottom. But you have to kind of be into it to enter that headspace. And if you ain't into it, you ain't into it. And there's nothing wrong with not being into it. And not all women are. Go find some of them to go out with and date. I uh, just listened to episode 422, and I have a comment about one of the comments at the end. Uh, the woman who replied to the guy from the previous episode who's seven-year-old daughter was masturbating on the furniture by suggesting that he should buy her a sex toy is not looking at the world through a man's eyes. I think it's fine for a seven-year-old girl to have a sex toy, but I think an adult father who buys his seven-year-old daughter a sex toy is going to be in a world of hurt if anybody finds out. No matter how innocent and pure his motivations are, 
that's just going to send up creepy red flags to anyone who knows it's happened. So he had better think twice before he follows that advice. Hi, Dan. I just listened to episode 422, and I just had a comment for the guy who his wife is, ex-wife is crazy, and he's probably not going to get to see his kids. And I actually had that same situation with my parents growing up. And I can tell you that my mom tried to be against my dad my whole life. And then when I was old enough to understand, probably about 13, my dad started reaching out to me more. And now I'm 27 years old, and I spend all my holidays with my dad, and I barely talk to my crazy mom. So there is hope for this poor guy. Hang in there. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. We have a live taping of the Savage Lovecast coming up in just a couple of days at Seattle's Neptune Theater. It is our first ever Christmas spectacular, December 5th, Seattle's Neptune Theater. Go to thestranger.com slash lovecastchristmas for tickets. There are just a few left. Please join us. We have gifts for everyone in the audience. Adult Baby Jesus, Rachel Lark will be there. Comedians, dancers, and uh, more questions. It's going to be a blast. December 5th, Neptune Theater, thestranger.com slash lovecastchristmas. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Damon Jacobs on Twitter at Damon L. Jacobs. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 